This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So what I want to uh, talk about, um, as the title would suggest, uh, is on the one hand what, what the scientific method has taught us about what kind of universe that we live in. And especially I want to talk about sort of four very successful, mostly, uh, scientific principles or ideas, as that's the Big Bang Theory explaining the beginning of our universe and what the cosmos is like. It's, sort of, it's the basic laws of physics, so things like Newtonian mechanics, electromagnetism, and how that explains the formations of stars and planets. It's the uh, laws of chemistry and how that might end up explaining the origins of life. And it is the principle of Darwinian evolution and how that has led to the kind of animals, including our own animal body uh, here on Earth. So these are four, so very, four uh, big developments in the past 100 to 200 years in science that are often put in opposition with a more traditional cosmology that is imbued with meaning and purpose. So the goal of this lecture is to try to bring them back together uh, and let's see how we succeed with that. But the image that I want you to have uh, in uh, the back of your, of your head, the image that I want you to have in the back of your head, the image that I will be carrying with me, is the image that's presented in Dante's Divine Comedy. For, you, for those of you who have read it or heard about it, the final book, Paradiso, is when the pilgrim enters up through the different heavenly spheres. So we're in Aristotelian cosmology. And it seems like he's moving outward, uh, sort of further and further away from the center of the universe, which that's the center of the earth. But as he's approaching that outermost sphere, what happens is this sort of strange inversion, both in the book and in the cosmology, where that outermost sphere beyond which is uh, a God himself, you end up looking now back towards the center of the universe. And the reason I think that image is, first of all, a fantastic sort of creative one, but it's also useful, is when we think about um, sort of where things come from, we think about causality. Uh, so contemporary science has a rather narrow view of what causality means. We tend to think about sort of one thing following another, sort of billiard balls hitting one another. So that's one way, that's one kind of causality. But there is a richer concept, going back to Aristotle, going back to Thomas Aquinas, where one thinks not just what happened before to cause something, but also where something is aiming. A and that's a kind of cause as well. And we're gonna be thinking about that sort of kind of final causality and how that might play in with what the universe uh, is for. The first uh, theory then that I want to uh, talk about is the Big Bang Theory. So how the universe uh, started. This is, uh, I think for most of us, this is something we take for granted that we live in a universe that uh, is evolving, is changing over time. But this is not something we should take for granted. So before looking closer into what the Big Bang Theory is, I think it's useful to just have a look at what else people have thought that our universe uh, is like. So going back to about the time when Genesis was written, 
we have uh, the Babylonian cosmology. So this is a cosmology, uh, it's pantheistic. It's where uh, things in the universe, stars, the moon, the sun, are all divine in different ways. So there's not that clear distinction between the divine and creation as we have in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, the cosmos, the way that it looks, uh, it's very similar to the one that's described in the Old Testament. We have the sort of a half dome uh, holding back the heavenly waters from the earthly waters. You have the subterranean uh, kind of dark uh, uh, structure, and then humans live uh, in between. And one thing that's useful, and that I want to come back to a little bit later, is that this uh, when we're reading Genesis and trying to make sense of sort of contemporary science in light of Genesis, it's good to know in what context that Genesis was written. It was written in this context of this kind of uh, near Middle East and ancient cosmology. Uh, this was not the news, uh, the news of Genesis, this kind of cosmology. What was the new thing uh, was that the divine was removed. So when we are reading Genesis, the sun and the stars and the moon, they're lamps. They are created things. They have no sort of divinity of themselves. And instead of uh, being sort of capricious beings that can do what they want, they follow patterns or law, laws or orders that have been put in place by the one creator, uh, God. This cosmology, this sort of flat earth domed cosmology, uh, was followed by uh, what you can think about the, as the Aristotelian cosmology, though th this is part of a bigger sort of family of cosmologies where you have the Earth at the center, which people figured out uh, pretty early on, maybe sort of 2,500 years ago or so, that it was round. So this is something that has been known for a long time. Uh, and they had reasons to think that the Earth was in the center, and then other uh, heavenly bodies orbiting uh, orbited it. Uh, the structure is not inconsequential, but the thing that I want to draw attention to is that here we now have a cosmos that is naturally uh, eternal or infinite in time. When we're talking about the previous two, we had a starting point and then some sort of development. But when we're talking about Aristotelian cosmology or the one, the more very mechanical one that came about during the scientific uh, revolution, we're talking about sort of clockwork kind of cos uh, cosmologies where there's no change in time. Once they have been sort of wound up and got started, uh, that's it. Uh, this developed into the so-called steady state cosmology of the sort of 20th, uh, 19th and 20th century which is when uh, astronomers started using larger telescopes to observe the cosmos. And as far as they could tell, the cosmos looked the same uh, in all directions. And they posited that it was uh, not just the same in space, but also in time, in line with these earlier uh, cosmologies. Um, this was all rather violently broken up in the early, in the 1930s uh, by the, the center figure here, uh, Father Lemaitre. Uh, Father Lemaitre uh, had the idea that uh, the cosmos was not, uh, 
currently just expanding, which there was starting to be some evidence uh, for. But that if you took, if it was currently expanding, and you sort of went back in time, then there should be a point where the universe was so compact that it was indistinguishable from basically the nucleus of an atom. Um, and this is the birth of the Big Bang uh, theory. It was initially not received with a lot of enthusiasm, uh, except for by the Pope. The Pope very early on uh, adopted this as a very reasonable idea of the, of the cosmos. But it did not receive a lot of uh, enthusiasm in the scientific field. And I would say this is one of the examples where we see very clear ideological prejudice. But this time coming from an atheistic uh, point of view, uh, who tended to feel much more comfortable with the idea of an sort of temporally infinite universe where you didn't really have to think about things like creation. Now this kind of universe, the Big Bang cosmology, where you have a beginning, uh, to many that seemed eerily familiar to the kind of religious stories that they had rejected and therefore something that they were rather loath to accept. But over time the scientific evidence uh, grew stronger um, and about 40 years later or so, they were strong enough that this became the accepted theory by the scientific community. So what is the Big Bang uh, cosmology? Most of it is captured uh, in this image. So what the Big Bang cosmology tells us is that a bit like more than 13 uh, billion years ago, the whole visible uh, universe was, so, was in a so a space smaller than that of a nucleus of an atom. So this is like impossible to try to imagine. So, I mean, first of all, cosmological distances are, I would say, impossible to imagine. Atomic sizes are impossible to imagine. And now we're trying to squeeze one uh, into the other. But the important thing is that this was so compact and so hot that any of the particles that we take for granted here, even the laws of how they interact, uh, were not yet there. But the universe started to expand, and as it expanded, it cooled, and as it cooled, more of the particles that we uh, take for granted started to come together, starting with things like the, the basic particles of, of atoms and molecules. It took um, about 300,000 years for the first big transformation to happen in our cosmos. And that was the one of light and matter separating and starting to have their own uh, independent existence. We know this because we have a picture of it. So 300,000 years ago, uh, the universe had cooled down enough that light was no longer energetic enough to kick out electrons uh, from atoms and therefore start its independent existence. And when that, when that sort of wave of light started to move uh, in the cosmos, it continued to move as the cosmos expanded, became longer and longer in wavelength. And today we can detect it as the cosmic microwave background radiation. And the detection of this, the first detection of this in the 1960s what was also the final piece of evidence that was needed for the whole astronomical community to accept the Big Bang Theory uh, as a proper description of what kind of cosmos that we're in. 
as the universe continued uh, to expand uh, and cool, uh, you started having gas starting to, to um, implode in on itself uh, to form the first stars and galaxies. Uh, some of the uh, oldest galaxies are shown here. Uh, some of you might recognize this image. It was released in July uh, to demonstrate that the new space telescope, the James Webb telescope, uh, is working correctly. And you see a lot of odd galaxies, but some of the faintest ones, uh, the sort of red faint ones, uh, are oldest ones. We're looking here at galaxies that go back to sort of a billion years uh, after the Big Bang. Uh, these galaxies uh, would continue to develop and evolve to form galaxies that are similar to our own, uh, the Milky Way. So Milky Way, our own local galaxy, has around 300 billion stars in it. And then within the visible universe, we don't know how much bigger it is beyond that, there are around 100 billion galaxies or so. So this was all, like the seeds of these galaxies were all in those small perturbations that you could see in that image of the cosmic microwave uh, background radiation. Within these galaxies, the first stars formed and then exploded. Uh, this is very important when we think about how the cosmos continued to evolve, since at the Big Bang, the only elements that were available was hydrogen and helium. Uh, you can't do a lot of chemistry with that. Uh, but in stars, you can fuse together elements to form heavier uh, elements, things like carbon and oxygen, that go into eventually into living beings such as our such as ourselves, and this is was all formed in exploding stars. So this is a good time to sort of pause and think about uh, what does this mean and what do we do with what we know now about the Big Bang theory as the good description of the kind of cosmos that we live in. Uh, a first thing is to go back. Uh, to both the enthusiasm and the fear of this theory as it was presented of seeming too biblical. It seems biblical because it suggests that there was a creation in time, which is exactly what you get at the very beginning of Genesis and, it's under, and how it's been understood and interpreted uh, ever since. Uh, and some uh, would like to go as far as to say that the Big Bang proved that we had a creation out of, not out of nothing, that that is how the whole cosmos came into existence, which in some sense would prove uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition right. But this is taking it a little bit too far, because what the Big Bang Theory describes is not how the universe came into existence, but what happened at the very first moment of the universe already being there. When we start with the Big Bang, you already have that extremely dense and hot kind of nucleus that's then going to expand into forming an ent entire cosmos. You don't actually see the moment of creation out of nothing, which is how we understand um, what is going on in Genesis. Now, it could be that this was preceded by creation, but it could also be that something else came before it. And this is what many have posited, that maybe our cosmos sort of bubbled up from some deeper structure. Uh, maybe there was something like a quantum vacuum before that we could have formed out of. Uh, so it's not proof of creation, but I would say it's very suggestive. 
what we have with the Big Bang um, is, I think, a beautiful icon of what creation is. I think this is probably the closest that you could get that would be comprehensible, that could be something we could measure or understand to what creation uh, actually is. And I think it is uh, rather providential that just as uh, our society, especially the academe, was moving away from a theistic kind of worldview, is when we discovered that we live in a universe that for all our purposes has a beginning. It does suggest that the universe is in itself a story that has a beginning and has also some sort of end point and a story that's told uh, in between. And I would say if there is any, like one of I think the purposes or meanings that we can divine behind the Big Bang Theory is exactly this, that it reminds us that we do not live in this sort of mechanistic world where we can, where things just go on and on the same way, but we live in a universe that evolves over time that gives us something to contemplate and to, and to ponder. Creation, or like the Big Bang, also as I was saying, I think is, gives us an idea of what creation is like. We can think about it as an icon uh, of creation. And in doing that, I think what it also does is that it makes it much harder to not think about creation at all. If you live in, an, in a universe that's infinite in time, um, it is less obvious that creation is needed. Now, that doesn't mean it isn't needed. Uh, one of the things that the theologians like Thomas Aquinas uh, has done is to explain to us um, why creation is needed even if something is infinite in time and that God could create an infinite universe. Uh, Thomas was famously involved uh, in some very hot debates in the Middle Ages whether you could philosophically prove whether the universe was infinite in time or finite, if it had a beginning. There were people on both sides, both people who thought they could prove that the universe was infinite in time, that it didn't have a beginning, those who thought they could prove that it had to have a beginning. Well, I think Thomas Aquinas very astutely saw that you can do neither. Philosophically, we cannot tell, and you could, you could replace philosophically for scientifically there. We cannot tell whether the universe truly has a beginning or not. That is something that is ultimately revealed uh, to us. But what the Big Bang Theory does is to give us an image of what it looks like and a reminder of how contingent our universe is. So within this universe, uh, we have laws of physics, such as Newtonian mechanics. And those laws, uh, when applied to the kind of matter that we have in the universe, produces some really interesting structures. This is another image from the James Webb uh, Space Telescope that's more recent. Uh, what it's showing is stars coming into existence. So this is a so-called uh, cloud, interstellar cloud. These clouds, they have mass, which means that they can start to implode in on themselves. As they implode, uh, you start heating up the, the core, and this leads to the formation of a star. These clouds also always have a bit of spin, and because you need to preserve spin or angular momentum, uh, you will end up with basically spinning up the star, and if you put all the angular momentum into a central star, 
it would just spin into oblivion. So instead what nature does is it puts a little bit of the material in a disk around the star, and this is where planets form. Uh, so with just a little bit, basically, of, of Newtonian mechanics, you can go from these interstellar clouds to a whole new uh, solar system, such as our own. One of the amazing things is that we live in a galaxy that's still, where this is still going on. So every year, around seven stars uh, forms in our galaxy. And as of a few years ago, we can see those stars not just forming, but the planetary systems forming around them. Uh, there is um, a very beautiful telescope down in Chile uh, called ALMA. So you see a picture of some of the dishes that go into this. And these dishes, this telescope, allows us to basically see these disks uh, where planets are forming. So these are actual observations of some of these, some of these planet-forming disks. And if you look carefully, well, actually, you don't even have, need to have to look that carefully. You'll see that there are these like dark lanes uh, in these disks. And that's where planets right now, we think, are carving out material as they are, are forming. So we can see these sort of laws in action leading to planetary systems. What we think is happening within this disk, within these gaps, uh, is that first dust, think about it as sand particles, basically, come together to form pebbles, then boulders, then something like an asteroid, and then planets uh, themselves. Uh, this leads to planets like those in our solar system, which we have known about for a long time. There used to be nine, now there are eight. But at the same time as we demoted Pluto, we started discovering planets around other stars, uh, which means that by now, which we have done so successfully, that by now we know that pretty much every star that we in our galaxy, including all the ones you can see by eye, including the ones that are most nearby, have planetary systems uh, around them. Uh, which is, in some sense, could be a whole other talk, but we are going to uh, just focus, uh, at least for now, on our own uh, home planet, the Earth, and how, how planets like this form and how you can make it into a more interesting planet, such as the beautiful water and life-filled planet uh, that we have here. But before doing that, uh, I think, and it's worth just pausing and just thinking about that it's not obvious that you have to live in a universe that works so regularly according to laws the way that our cosmos seem to do. Whether we look at things that are in this room or we look at galaxies that are 13 billion light years away, they seem to follow the same physical laws. So if we go back to those initial cosmologies, we see that this is not something that's obvious that you can intuit just from looking around you. There seems that there's a lot of chaos, actually, and sort of willfulness in nature if, if we look here on Earth. And yet, many of the things we see, if we put living creatures aside, but there's some more complicated things going on, can be reduced to a very small set of physical laws that we can comprehend. And neither of those are obvious both that we have this incredible sort of law-abiding universe and that there's something inside of us that sort of corresponds to it uh, so we can actually understand it. I think if there was, uh, if uh, you ever need an image of thinking about the logos, 
both as being out there and being responsible for the whole creation, and also that there must be something of the logos inside of us. I think, think about how stars and planets, planets form, and that we actually have figured out uh, how, uh, how that happens. But once you have a planet, uh, one of the things we're astronomers, I would say, and non-astronomers alike, are the most interested in, in asking is if you can get it to be a living planet. This is interesting whether you want to understand our own history with Earth or whether you want to try to predict how often you get life uh, on other planets. Uh, to have life, there are a couple of ingredients that we think are important. And this is presumes that we have chemi chemistry-based life as we have here, here on Earth. One of them is water. And it turns out that when we look at these disks that I just showed you, uh, when we take spectra of what's going on in those disks, we see spectra that corresponds to water. Uh, if the other ingredient that you would like to have if you want to be able to have life is organics, organic molecules, you can get some organic chemistry uh, going. And if we look at disks using actually the same telescope, this ALMA telescope, uh, we also see that there are organic molecules. So in these, these are images where we have isolated the photons coming from different organic molecules. So you see basically where it's brighter colors, there are more molecules. And it's easier to see if I zoom in on a few of them, which is what's shown here. So these are five different plant-forming disks showing wh where sort of the light is uh, sort of bright, brightening up is where there is a lot of organic molecules, in this case, hydrogen cyanide. So this is something we can do right now, is that we can see, observe not just these disks as they're forming planets, but the chemistry that's going on in them. And what we are deducing is that planets typically form in environments that are conducive to the kind of chemistry that you might think be necessary to have an ordinance of life, not just here on Earth, but more generally. Here on Earth, we think that ordinance of life happened through chemistry, through a development basically of organic uh, chemistry. Our planet is around 4.5 billion years old. Uh, we know it was not very hospitable during its first few hundred million years because we had an impact, basically a Mars-sized uh, body uh, crashed into us, and as a result, uh, the whole surface melted we also formed the moon. Uh, and this m meant that first, it said few hundred million years of the Earth, you're not gonna have any life. Uh, once the Earth cools down around 4.2 billion years ago, there is a gap where we don't know a lot, where we don't have a lot of data. But around three, three and a half billion years ago, we start getting data. And what we see is that life is abundant and it's complex. And that probably means that it's been around for quite a while. So it might be that the origins of life here on Earth happened fairly quickly. Now the way we think it happens is we start out with simple molecules like the hydrogen cyanide that I just showed you that is abundant to our planet's form. These react to form bigger molecules, things like amino acids, sugars, sort of the backbones of the big biomolecules that we are all composed of. And then these building blocks combine into forming uh, molecules that are at the heart of life, so thing like, things like RNA and DNA, uh, they, these somehow become compartmentalized, start to do things that we associate with life, and we have life happening somewhere around 
four to 3.5 billion years ago, but it's only around, I said, 3.6 billion years ago where we know for sure that life is around and where we see that we have our last common ancestor of all life uh, here on Earth. But that life, as I said, is way too complex to not have been around for quite, uh, quite a while. Where exactly and how exactly this chemistry happened is not clear. There are many people working on it that have different theories about sort of the precise chemical pathways uh, that led to life and even where it happened. If it happened deep in the ocean next to vents, if it happened up in the atmosphere, if it happened in, uh, in lakes that were exposed to UV. Um, if I get to pick, I do the last one, I did a, the, this UV exposed lakes, which is actually also what Darwin uh, thought, so it's a nice sort of throwback to him. Um, and the reason I think this is probably the likeliest place is that there, are, there is very interesting chemistry uh, that has been shown to happen when you have things like hydrogen cyanide in these lakes, you expose them to UV, you end up forming all the basic building blocks you would expect for terrestrial life. So what does this mean? So I guess there is both uh, here potential in some sense theological danger as well as I would claim a much more interesting uh, so theological positive. I think the danger like, that sometimes is felt is that the origins of life seems to be one of those just fundamental creative moments uh, that God took upon himself. Maybe not too dissimilar from the creation of the cosmos. So there's something that's fundamentally different between non-living things and between living things. And therefore, if we uh, can explain, and we're not there yet, but if we figure out uh, how chemistry, this very non-living, non-directional thing, at least it would seem like that, uh, can, can explain the origins of life, that we are removing one of sort of the big tasks of God, uh, and therefore the following and the footsteps and uh, sort of building on this story that has been told, that it used to be that we needed God for all sorts of things, and then one after one, they have been removed as science has come in and explained them. Uh, that, however, I think was, was never a very helpful way to view how God creates. And it's actually not how someone like Thomas Aquinas views creation by God. Rather, the way that, uh, rather one should distinguish between the moment of creation, so this is the kind of things that can only be brought into existence uh, out of nothing. This is something that God does completely on his own. Versus the modification of things that are already created. And here, the typical way that God works is through others. Whether we're talking about forming galaxies or stars, uh, or forming structures here on Earth, or most likely even forming life out of non-living things, the typical way that God changes his creation is through other beings. Now, this is actually something that I think is incredibly beautiful and much more impressive than the universe where everything is sort of dictated uh, directly by God. This means that we have a universe that's imbued with causal power, uh, where God seems to delight in giving his creation the power to do things and to really, really do things. So it's not... Um, 
not like it's God is doing it and just seems like we're doing it. No, we are really uh, doing things. But you, of course, don't want to go all the way wrong in the other direction where you say that that means that then God is not doing it. Uh, one uh, example that I think is helpful that a friend of mine often uses uh, is asking the question of who killed Polonius. Uh, so Polonius, one of the characters in Hamlet, um, one of the answers should probably be Hamlet. That would be a correct answer. But another answer could be Shakespeare. And these are not in competition with one another. And I think that is a very good sort of picture to have in your head of what it means that God is causing everything and we are also causing everything, or laws of nature are also causing everything, including things like the origins of life. And I think it's more impressive uh, this is because we know from experience that it is far more difficult to cause things through sort of an inferior being than to do things ourselves. Anyone who has spent time with young children and tried to teach them how to read or do other useful things will know that that's much harder than reading something out yourself, for example. It's also, I think, this origins of life business, I think, is also interesting in the sense that if we f figure out how organic chemistry leads to life, uh, and it does that on a regular basis, not just here on Earth, but whenever you have sort of the basic right conditions for an interesting chemistry happen, you get life. What that would suggest is that there's something in the laws of chemistry that we have not yet figured out that sort of drives towards living things. And what that will tell us is that we live in a universe that was really made for life to happen in it. You can say designed, uh, if you mean by that, that we're still using sort of laws of nature to, to design it, but that it, it, it was at, its sort of at, the, at the very foundation of our cosmos is this directionality towards bringing forth uh, life. So if we have life, um, so we have origins of life, how do we get then complicated species like ourselves? Well, if we're just talking about our body, or at least the bodies of our ancestors, um, then we're talking about the ideas of Darwinian evolution. The only uh, thing I want to mention here is that this is not as easy as one might think, at least if we look at our own earthly history. So if we have origins of life happening around four to three and a half billion years ago, it took then at least three billion years to go from single cell to multi-cell organisms. So Darwinian evolution can work very efficiently under some circumstances, but it took a long time to make that jump from single cell to more complex uh, species. But once you do get the, these more this multicellular species, it goes very fast and we get a lot of different, different animals. Around six billion years ago, we get an intelligent animal that starts walking on two legs. Uh, you will see some people talking about these as humans. They're part of the, they start being part of the Homo uh, group as we move sort of a couple of million years later. Whether you want to talk about these as humans or not, uh, depends on your definition. So if you want to talk about sort of if they're part, are they 
sort of biologically part of the homo group that is correct to call them humans. But do they behave in human ways? No, they do not. They do not for a long time. It is not that we have around five million years of these human-like intelligent animals. But it is only in the past sort of 50,000 years that we start seeing things like this. Things that signify uh, art, language, the kind of um, social structures that we associate with, with the human nature. We don't, this, by the way, should be surprising, even from a purely sort of scientific way, that you have something that seems biologically not to change very much for at least sort of a few hundred thousand years, but that suddenly starts to behave very, very differently. I said around 35 to 50,000 years ago. Uh, as, a, as a Christian, as a, I think there is at least one uh, answer is consistent with this picture, which is that we, that we know both philosophically and by faith that we are not just material beings. That while our bodies were made out of the earth, or if you read some of the sort of medieval translations out of the slime of the earth, uh, our souls are very much not of the earth. That our souls are something that were given to us directly by God and actually were created by God. When we're talking about our immaterial souls, we're talking about something not just that cannot uh, sort of come down to us through natural means or through in, in a material way, but we're talking about something that can only be created out of nothing directly by God. And that every single one of our souls, not just that of our original parents, is that kind of creation uh, out of nothing. It is uh, definitely something we can talk a little bit more about what that means for our bodies. Uh, at least in the Catholic tradition, we do not think about it as you sort of have a body here and a soul here, and you sort of shoot one of them into the other. Uh, but rather that the soul is the form of the body that gives, that makes the body, human body, what it is. Which means that it wouldn't be surprising if at the moment in history when we become ensouled beings, there are also things that change about our bodies, even if it's more subtle than maybe it's easy to discover from sort of uh, skeletal uh, remains. This, the creation of the first human, uh, we know by revelation, was in some sense the high point of creation. That the whole universe, such as it is, was created to be governed in the best sense by, by the humans, these ensouled beings that are straddled the natural and the supernatural realms. But we know also that this is not the end of the story, that while the creation of the first humans was a pivotal moment in, in the universe, and if there are rational animals on any other planets, their creation would be too. But that the real center point, and I think this is where we get to the true inversion of the story, was the one particular person when the creator of the whole cosmos chose, chose to step into his creation, first as a baby and then as a, as a man, and to die for it, to, 
to rescue us. So if we're talking about what the purpose and meaning uh, of this whole cosmos is, we're talking about the Logos that became Jesus Christ and was born and lived and was crucified for us. And, I, and that's where I want to bring back uh, this image of what the sort of purpose and meaning, what the true center of the universe is and how we can think about it. And there are, uh, so if we, if we accept this sort of biblical revelation that the purpose of the universe was in some sense to be for us, then one should be careful with what for us means. As I said, I think for Christ might be a better one, for the one uh, God-man than uh, just to, to serve us. Uh, one um, way to express this that I thought was very beautiful that somebody else told me uh, is that the whole creation is there to give glory to God in its all different particular ways. But it was only once you had the rational animal when you had us that you could give voice to that glory. So in some sense, we are here to give voice of the glory that's given by ho the whole creation uh, to God. There are, uh, if we accept this, that the universe is for us, there are some mi mysteries that present itself. And I just want to talk about one, and then we can have to take more sort of during Q&A. But one that I think is often brought, brought up as sort of a problem for this idea is that the universe seems so very big and so very old. So if the universe was made for us, why is it not more human-sized? Uh, why does it have to be that, that vast? I think there are several different ways to address it. One is simply that the laws of physics that this universe was created with sort of mandates it to be that big. A smaller universe would not be able to create the kind of stars and planets uh, that we need to have, have life on them. But I think another way to approach it is to realize that this is actually not anything new. When you read the psalmist sort of looking up at the stars and wondering if the world is so big, how can God care about us? You have very much the same sentiment. Humans were never the biggest uh, things around. And if God himself chose to be at some point be an embryo, then I don't think we should think about sort of putting how big something is versus how important something is that's ever being built in into our worldview. But I think a final way to look at it is not to complain that the cosmos is not as human-sized, as cozy as, as we might want it to, but instead to be in absolute wonder for how immense of a universe that God created for us and how beautiful he made it. And there might be other living things out there, but it might also be there just for us. I mean, that would kind of fit in with the sort of crazy love affair that we know that God ha has had for us and how he has pursued us in different ways. That sort of hyper generosity, I think, would fit in very well with other things that we know about God as our creator and redeemer. And I think there I will stop and take any questions.
Thank you, Dr. Oberg. That was absolutely excellent. Um, so we have about 10 minutes to do Q&A. Um, if you have a question, please raise your hand. Um, Dr. Oberg, would you like to call on the students or would you like me to? So I don't, so they don't have to feel bad that okay. I am. <laughs> okay, I will take the blame if your question is not answered. But yeah, please raise your hand, and I'll come around with the microphone. Um, you kind of suggest that uh, the change in physical behavior in humans uh, 50,000 years ago is, in some sense, due to the uh, the concept of the soul. Um, and as someone studying physics here, uh, my question then is. Does that mean there's some sort of uh, field theory or, or coupling constant for the soul and uh, physical matter? Thank you for that question. So I guess first, just a brief clarification. So I don't know when a soulment happened, but by 35,000 years, it had happened. Like only a rational animal could produce that kind of art. So there are different ways to think about what the soul is, and there have been many different ideas through, through the ages. If we think about one of the ideas that people have had, and these are people like sort of Descartes, is that the soul is some sort of entity, like a spiritual entity, but still an entity. And then the body is some sort of entity, and then you sort of couple them together. And I think that's where your question come from. That leads to a lot of complications, because it's not clear at all how you could couple sort of a spiritual entity and a bodily entity. Um, and it's also this, this weird dualism, which is like, are you your soul? Are you your body? Like, it seems like the two can be treated separately. So what is the human person? And most people would then put it in the soul. Uh, instead, the more sort of classical pre-modern conception that I think is the more helpful one goes back to people like Aristotle that thinks about organizing principles for matter. And our soul is the organizing principle for us for our body. Uh, now, everything has an organizing principle, and Aristotle will say that anything living has a soul of some kind. Uh, but our soul is special in that it's supernatural, directly created by God, and that's why it gives us all these powers that animals do not have, that are not rational animals. So uh, look into uh, some of the Aquinas 101 uh, on this. And uh, I think that just provides a very helpful explanation for what kind of beings we are. Thank you, great question. First of all, thank you so much for the lecture. Um, in your perspective, what advice will you give to a person who is currently experiencing existential crisis where he failed to recognize the meaning of his life? Sorry, I, I, the existential crisis? Yes. That, yeah. Uh, so I think that depends so much of, of where that person is and what kind of relationship uh, you have with, with him or her. Uh, I think most people intuit that relationships have a lot to do with what it means to be human and sort of at the center. I think that's something we naturally intuit and that's why sort of marriage is a natural good and so on. So I think people who are despairing, I think most of the time the best thing you can give to them is friendship. Uh, rather than giving them sort of a theory. Because I think to actually absorb what I think are sort of true and helpful theories about what the cosmos is like, there needs to be a certain sort of receptivity to them. And if you are in sort of a pit of despair, that is typically not gonna be, be it. That being said, what really helped me as I was trying to figure out 
what kind of cosmos we were in and not feeling that things really made sense uh, was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Highly recommend it for anyone who wants to get the first idea of what thinking Christians um, think what kind of world we live in and why that points towards God. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, this hand and then I'll go up there. Um, yeah, I just had a couple questions that relate to each other in terms of like what existed before the Big Bang, because I know it was like empty space and all that, um, like universe coming coming from nothing in terms of that. I still don't know how to like wrap my head around that. Like, what does that mean in terms of empty space? Yeah, it's a great question, and many people have had troubles with that. Well, part of it because we can't picture it, yeah. and we think in images. So the short answer is there's a couple of different options. If the universe is all there is, then nothing existed. Now, nothing is very different from empty space yeah. is the problem. And we can only think, when we think about nothing, we take like, what's the least thing like we can think about? And it's something like a vacuum. I mean that's, but it was less than that. Because a vacuum, you still have space. You still have the laws of physics. And that's very much something. So when we're talking about this true metaphysical nothing, we are really talking about nothing. And if, if our universe was created out of nothing, then there was really nothing there. Now, people have speculated that there might have been something there, and one something that there could have been is an empty space, but that still, uh, we're still some sort of laws of physics uh, applied to. Uh, someone like Stephen Hawking said, well, you don't need creation out of nothing because you could have a quantum vacuum where things sort of pop into existence. First of all, things popping into existence without any explanation is maybe not the most satisfying answer. But still, that is very much something. You already have something at that point. So I think it's less a question of trying to imagine it and more a question of trying to discipline yourself to removing the things that you are imagining. Because if you're imagining it, it's not nothing. Um, what is your perspective on the creation and flood narrative in the book of Genesis? Uh, thank you for that question. Um, I'm not sure I have a very strong perspective. Uh, there is, um, I believe that everything in the Bible is literally true to start with. But I think when we're talking about literal, we also have to uh, be mindful of what can, what, what kind of text it is and what the author intended to convey. I think it's a little bit easier in Genesis 1 to see because it is structured in such a poetic way that it seems very much to be trying to convey something that is not sort of a time order. And one of the things that gives it away is that you have light before you have the sun, for example, and you have night and day before you have the sun and moon. And certainly people at the time knew that the sun, you needed the sun to have day. Um, and this is something that St. Augustine in like the fourth century is already discussing. So this is a legit orthodox way of literally uh, reading Genesis, Genesis 1. So once you get to the flood narrative, uh, there's no scientific evidence of having the whole earth being underwater within the past you know, 50,000 years. So I'd say that interpretation is probably not correct. Was there an actual flood in the Middle East like where the Hebrews 
had lived or where the Hebrews uh, came to live. Uh, there were certainly some floods um, that were probably, uh, that was um, incorporated into their understanding of the word. We see it also in the Babylonian myth. I think what is interesting is what happens in Genesis, you no longer have this sort of capricious kind of God sort of throwing floods around because they got, get annoyed, but it becomes a symbol of sort of divine, of divine justice. And I think where I think the flood narrative is so helpful, has been very helpful for me, is that it answers the questions of why does God not just get rid of the evil in the world? Uh, and it does that, I think, in a beautiful way in showing what it means to get rid of the evil in the world. It basically gets rid of us, right? That, that the, sort of the line between good and evil goes between, like, within the human heart rather than between people. And we see that even with sort of like the good people that Noah, first thing he does when he gets off the boat is get drunk. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is not what we, would call, what we would call sort of a perfect person. So I think so the way that I have approached, I have, I have not thought about the historicity, I guess, as much of it, or what it means in that way, but it has been helpful for, for me in thinking about that question that I think you often get, like, why does God allow evil to exist in this world, especially moral evil? Why doesn't he just get rid of it? And I think the story of Noah uh, tells us why. Thank you. Uh, we will do one last question. Uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, one of the things I noticed, I'm a philosophy yeah. professor myself, and I noticed that you weave philosophy and theology and science together in your talk. Could you say something more, maybe from a more personal perspective about your own narrative, about how you've come to recognize the importance of weaving these three together? Yes, thank you for that question. Uh, so I think it is important as a person to be a whole sort of integral person and to not, uh, so I mean, I'm a scientist, my profession is I'm a scientist, but I'm also a Catholic. And it's been important for me to not feel like I'm one person at work and one person when I go to mass or one person that I pray. And there are some ways that you can connect sort of the spiritual and so they're working out your scientific vocation very naturally, but often that connection for me comes through the philosophical uh, as well. So for me, it's been important to, to experience myself as sort of a wholly complete person that is the same one, no matter where I am, uh, to be able to bring those together. Now, obviously, I'm hoping I can do it in more in depth on the scientific place than I can do it in the philosophical or theological, but I guess I've tried to also model for scientists or other people who don't know philosophy and theology to dare uh, to step out a little bit of our comfort zone and also bringing theological and philosophical concepts in talks like this, counting on the charity of the audience uh, as, uh, as we do it. So that's been some of the motivations for me. Awesome. Thank you again, Dr. Oberg, for an absolutely amazing lecture. Um, something I did not mention at the beginning was that we recorded this and we will upload it to 
the Thomistic Institute podcast. Um, this will take uh, about a month, a month or two um, for that to officially upload. But if you're thinking about this and it's really, you forget some things, um, you can always go back and check out the Thomistic Institute podcast and take a look at maybe some other takes on this. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So why don't we give Dr. Oberg one last round of applause um, for thanking her.